Okay, so as I'm sure you can tell, we are celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper today. And uh, that's not by accident. Over the past couple months or so, the Lord's Supper has been the topic of discussion at our elder meetings, uh, particularly the nature of the Lord's Supper. What is it, and what purpose does it serve? So we've been asking those questions, and having asked them, we've come to what we believe is a more biblical understanding of the Lord's Supper and what is happening when we partake of it. And I want to share with you just a little bit of the story about how we got to this point. About two years ago or so, um, I began to have an inclination that there was more to the Lord's Supper than merely remembrance. But it was just that, an inclination. It was kind of at the back of my mind and far enough back that it didn't, I didn't have to do anything with it. It was just there. And it would come up from time to time until, really of all places, I was scrolling through Twitter and someone tweeted verse 16 of our passage this morning, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. And when I read that, then what was at the back of my mind came all the way to the front and it was something that I had to deal with. It was kind of, I had wanting to have been pushing it away and not really address it, and then now it was something that I had to address. And so I began to study the passage, I began to read a little bit, try and get my bearings, and once I felt I had a decent understanding, I went to the elders at our elder meeting, and uh, I just said, I think my views on the Lord's Supper are changing, and uh, I think maybe we should change the way we administer things. And I was a little hot out of the gates, and I caught them off guard because I didn't ask anybody to prepare or whatever. I just almost off the cuff told them, and so Jim had the good, or good idea of sidelining it. He said, let's wait till next month, and because uh, this is new, we need to think about it, and he said, let's come back, and let's talk about it then. It'll give us an opportunity, and then Kurt suggested, well, Alex, why don't you go ahead and put together a paper um, putting your view there so that we can have it and we can reference it and we can refer back to it, we can tear it apart and see if we all agree, so on and so forth. So I said, great idea. I went to work. Two weeks later, I came back with a paper. I presented it to the elders on a Sunday morning, but I missed Jim. He was, uh, he's in and out because of work, and so I wasn't able to get it to him on time, and I just dropped it off with Susan and asked her to get it to him later. So one by one, I started to hear back from the elders. First time got to me, and he said, it checks out, this is biblical, let's move forward. And then following Tom was Greg, same thing, but I hadn't heard from Jim, and so I was wondering what was going on, and then a couple of days later, he gave me a call, um, and he said, really excited, I just listened to this conversation between you guys, know these people, K.P. Yohannan, the founder of the Gospel of Asia, or the Gospel for Asia, he's a great missionary, uh, the pastor Francis Chan, uh, he written books like Crazy Love and Forgotten God and Erasing Hell, and then The Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff. And uh, he said, I just got off of work and I wanted to listen to something and this is the first video I clicked and sure enough, it was about the Lord's Supper. And he began to tell me, he's like, it, and it was really convincing and I think my views on the Lord's Supper are beginning to change. And so then I asked him, hey, well, did you, did you read my paper? And he said, well, as I was listening to this, I began to feel my views being changed and then I got home and what was waiting for me was a paper on the Lord's Supper. And then he said, I think the Lord's trying to tell me something. 
And it was so reassuring because I was already fairly certain that I had divided the word rightly. And then Tom comes and signs off and he says, absolutely. And then Greg signs off, absolutely. And then Jim signs off. But then just the way things played out, the way that happened, it was a reassurance to me that not only were we doing the right thing, but it's the right time to do it. God's, God was moving and he was preparing our body for these measures. So we've come to a consensus about what we believe the scripture to teach regarding the Lord's Supper, and therefore we want to make a rather large change to the way we administer the Lord's Supper. Instead of celebrating it once a month or once a quarter, we will now be celebrating it every Sunday. Moved by the testimony of Scripture, we believe this is the right and proper thing to do. And now, rather than just instituting this new practice and leaving you in the dark, we thought it best to show you where we're coming from. Because it is a big change, and we understand that. And for some, it might be a little bit uncomfortable, it might be hard to accept. So we want to take this time and justify our decision and reassure you that it does stand on good scriptural grounds. And so I hope then this message will persuade you, not reluctantly, kind of hands in your pockets, okay, I'll go along with it, but joyfully joyfully about what we're going to learn. And I believe, because we have been praying for you, that you'll find this new understanding of the Lord's Supper to be an exciting and beautiful thing indeed. And so, as I said, our decision to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday was precipitated by our change, by a change in our understanding of the Lord's Supper. So let's go ahead and look at the passages that we read. I want to read the first section, once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 22. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. And verse 16 here is really ground zero for us. It says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say to you, the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke him to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So, before we dive into that passage, let's talk about our inherited understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's what is called, on the spectrum of things, the memorial view. This view was founded in the 16th century by a German theologian named Ulrich Zwingli. In one of his commentaries, he said, and I'll read it for you, the bread is only a figure of his body to remind us in the supper that the body was crucified for us. So, according to the founder of this view, he says that the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, are only, in his words, figures. That is, they're a symbol or they're a sign with no direct connection to Christ either 
physically or spiritually. Okay? They just serve solely as signs. Then the primary function of the Lord's Supper following that understanding is to serve as a remembrance or a memorial, right? So when we take of the Lord's Supper, it's purely to remember what the Lord has done for us. And this is the view that we're all familiar with. And let me go ahead and say it is a correct view. That's a perfectly legitimate interpretation of the Lord's words in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. That's right and correct. Now, although the memorial understanding of the Lord's Supper is correct, here's what we're trying to say this morning. It is too narrow. It's right, but it's not all the way right. Remember, remembrance is a true function of the Lord's Supper, but it's not the only one. Again, look at verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we, share, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So, more than merely a memorial, St. Paul understands the Lord's Supper to be, in his words, a sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Now, that may be translated differently in your Bible, either it's a participation I think that's even more explicit. It's a participation in the body and blood of Christ, or it says it is a communion in the body and blood of Christ. In the Greek, it's the word, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, koinonia, right? It's a very popular, one of those Greek words that comes into Christian vocabulary. And it's described as sharing with someone in something, or rather it's defined that way. Koinonia means to share in something with someone And in more than a few instances, this word koinonia is translated as fellowship. I want to read for you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship, into koinonia with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, koinonia, of the Spirit be with you all. So in these verses, what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that to be a believer is to be in true spiritual communion with the Lord through the Holy Spirit. We have a fellowship with Him. We have a communion with Him through the Spirit. And I bring those verses up because they give us some bearing about how to approach this sharing in the Lord's Supper. They help us to understand what we're talking about this morning. And so notice once again, the Apostle Paul makes a direct one-to-one connection between the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, and the Lord himself. He says that the cup of blessing which we bless is a sharing in the blood of Christ. It is a sharing. And then he says again, the bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. And so, as unbelievable as that might sound, it, in when we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, we truly share in and we truly participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 
There was something happening there that surpasses merely our remembrance. There's a spiritual union that is enacted between the believer, between the church, and the Lord himself when we partake of the supper. So go ahead and just suspend your disbelief for a minute, and let me take you on further in the passage. Because St. Paul backs up what he's saying by prohibiting the, uh, the Corinthians from partaking in pagan sacrifices. Look at verse 20. He says, No, I do not say the things which Gentiles sacrifice. He says, No, but I say that the, gen- the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So listen, the Corinthians, the Corinthians are not guilty, are guilty not merely by association. It's not that they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but rather, St. Paul says, that in attending these pagan temple sacrifices, the Corinthians had actually become, in his own words, sharers in demons. The same word that Jesus or that Paul uses to speak of our fellowship with Christ in the Lord's Supper, he says the same word is the same word he uses to describe the Gentiles' fellowship with their so-called gods, in reality, demons. They have a koinonia with these spiritual beings. So however we might understand what's going on there, it's undeniable that there was a true and genuine spiritual union between the pagan worshipers and their so-called gods. More than simply honoring or memorializing a particular deity, there was a real spiritual connection such that for Christians to participate, Paul tells them, is idolatry. You're not merely mingling with the wrong people. He says it's actually to worship another god. What was going on there was to such an extent that Christians were not allowed to participate whatsoever. So Paul asks, how could the Corinthians share in the table of demons or share in fellowship with demons at these pagan temple feasts? And how could they also share in the Lord at the Lord's Supper without provoking him to jealousy? How could you do both? How can you have a true spiritual communion with demons and how can you have a true spiritual communion with the Lord and not provoke him to anger and jealousy? There was a spiritual communion at these feasts that should be reserved for a believer and the Lord alone. So it's clear then that St. Paul classifies the Lord's Supper, what we're going to partake of today, alongside the pagan ritual sacrifices as, and this is important, a similar but opposite reality. What's happening there is similar, but it's not entirely the same thing. And what he means to say by that is that as these so-called gods were present at the pagan ritual sacrifices, so too the Lord himself is present when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're not really merely remembering him here on earth looking to heaven. Rather, he is present with us in a very special 
and unique way. And now we need to answer the question, how exactly do we share in the Lord? What, what is going on here when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Because, listen, I know for some this sounds a little too close to Roman Catholicism for comfort. The Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper is called transubstantiation. I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with that. If not, transubstantiation is the belief that the actual elements of the Lord's Supper, so the cup and the bread themselves, are transformed, literally transformed into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. They have a, a, a real fancy way of explaining it about accidents and essence and so on and so forth, but essentially what they believe is that it transforms when the priest consecrates it. It becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now this understanding, it finds no support in our passage. There's no hint of transubstantiation when we look at what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He does not say that the cup of blessing which we bless literally becomes the blood of Christ. Rather, that it is a sharing in the blood of Christ. And conversely, he says that the bread which we break, it doesn't become the body of Christ, but it is, but it is a sharing in the body of Christ. You see how those two things are radically different. One we're saying is transformed. It changes its essence such that to partake it is truly to partake of the Lord. But what Paul says here is that it is a sharing in Christ. So listen. I hope this can reassure some of you, because I know some of you come from a Catholic background. Whatever we partake the Lord, whatever is hap- or partake of the Lord's Supper, whatever is happening there is not transubstantiation. It's not that these are actually transformed into the body of Christ. Rather, the way we understand what's happening in the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's presence in the Lord's Supper, is to be a spiritual presence. Christ is among us, spiritually speaking. That is, as we partake of the cup and the bread physically, the Holy Spirit causes us to partake of the body and blood of Christ spiritually. Does that make sense? As we partake physically, there is a spiritual reality that is taking place beyond and behind that. So, the elements of the Lord's Supper... The bread and the cup are symbols, but they're not empty symbols. They are avenues through which we share in the Lord. I'd like you to consider a passage in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. In it, the Lord says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So, listen, when we remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. As he commanded us, the spirit of Jesus comes to us and he blesses us by uniting us to Jesus. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And so when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing. We're remembering the Lord. And as we remember him, he comes to us and he blesses us by uniting us to himself. And listen, I understand this is a lot to process. I'm asking you to make a jump over the course of a sermon that took me a couple of years to make. But just for the moment, let's look past some of the difficulties. Indeed, 
if there even are difficulties, to the sheer glory of what we just learned. In the Lord's Supper, we truly share in, we truly share in Jesus' own life. In light of our understanding, a passage like John chapter 6, verses 54 and 55, it takes on new significance. The Lord says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so consider how the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine before you, or the bread and the cup before you, um, communicate this spiritual reality. When we partake of the bread, and let's think of this in, in the context of which this was written, where bread was really their main sustenance, where compared to us now, that was the main thing that they relied upon for their lives. And so to have bread was to have your sustenance. It was to have your nourishment and your very life. This is what you depended upon. So as bread nourishes and sustains our bodily life, right? how we need bread to survive, so the body of Christ nourishes and sustains our spiritual life. The outward elements indicate what's going on spiritually. The bread is a symbol of what the Lord's body does for us. And conversely, as, as the cup refreshes and makes glad our bodily life, right? As it makes glad our bodily life, as we need that to restore us, so the blood of Christ renews and makes glad our spiritual life. What's happening outwardly, physically with the cup is taking place spiritually in the blood of Christ. So, bottom line, in the Lord's Supper, the Lord gives Himself to us in such a way that He becomes our food and our drink. He doesn't sustain our lives from afar, but rather, He is our life. He is our true drink and our true food. And not only that, but we experience a profound intimacy with Jesus. Just one verse over, John chapter 6, verse 56, the Lord says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Again, consider what the outward symbols communicate to us spiritually. We digest these elements. They are consumed, and then they go into our body. And it's a picture, again, of what is taking place spiritually. That we receive Jesus in such a way that spiritually He is consumed and internalized by us. He abides in us and we abide in Him when we partake of His life. And so, really, I don't think in the Christian life that there is anything more intimate. He's not outside of us as a friend or a spouse, but He's ours from the inside, so close to us that His life is nearly indistinguishable from ours. What does the Apostle Paul say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Lord says, if you take my body, you take my blood, I abide in you, and you abide in me. I think of what St. Augustine once said, speaking of the Lord, he said, you are more inward than my most inward parts. That the Lord is near to us 
than we are to ourselves. And so I understand there may be a bit of reluctance. Change and new ideas are hard to grapple with. But our eagerness, and here's the point I'm trying to get across, our eagerness to share with the Lord should overwhelm our reluctance with great joy. Because it is an incalculable calculable blessing that the Lord gives us in the supper. And that should overwhelm any reluctance with joy because we get to have not less of the Lord, but more of the Lord. But I want to continue on. There's a little bit more to understanding that needs to be reformed. Tucked away in Paul's larger discussion is a brief line in verse 17 that's also of importance for us. We've established the vertical Christ to church significance of the Lord's Supper. Now we're going to establish the horizontal member-to-member significance of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 17. It says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So his logic here is fairly straightforward. Though we are many, at the Lord's table, we become one, the Apostle Paul says, because we share in the same bread. Though we are many, we are one. Or in other words, listen, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're partaking in Christ, right? We partake in Christ. There's a spiritual union going on there. And as each one of us individually relate to Christ, because we share in the same body, we share in one another. We're united as one. We're all sharing the same heavenly bread. Therefore, in Him, we're united. And so think of the two Christian ordinances uh, or, or sacraments or whatever you want to call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we're baptized, what are we baptized into? The body of Christ. The diverse people are made one when we're baptized into the one body, right? And then when we take the Lord's Supper, we're uniting. That bond is strengthened, you could say. It, it, the Lord's Supper keeps us in that body that we were united to. So the two sacraments of the Christian faith are all about the unity of the church. But look, notice how utterly serious the Apostle Paul takes this. Look at verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I will not praise you. In this, I will not praise you. So, when the Corinthians came together for the Lord's Supper, they did so not as one body, but with divisions and factions existing among them. The rich sequestered themselves with the rich. The poor had nothing to eat. And some were even drunk at the Lord's Supper. Therefore, the Apostle Paul mourns and he says, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
He says, whatever you guys are doing, don't think that you're actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because though they had eaten the bread and drank from the cup, their blatant disunity, all these factions that existed among them, destroyed all the meaning, all meaning to the Lord's Supper. It, it at that point was utterly useless. And of course, this was no small offense. Look at verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. The Corinthians' desecration of the Lord's Supper was such an offense that they brought judgment upon themselves. Not merely uh, that they were you know, in sin, but they brought judgment upon themselves. Many became weak, weak and sick, and even some actually died. They incurred a severe penalty for their disunity. And so the question is, why such a severe price? And the answer is because the Lord's Supper is not, again, merely a nice thing or a helpful thing that we do remembering the Lord who is in heaven. Rather, Christ comes so near to us in the Lord's Supper. He draws so close to His body that the stakes are raised. And that to be disunified, to be in conflict with one another at the Lord's Supper is to risk bringing judgment upon ourselves. Therefore, Paul warns the Corinthians, look at verse 27, he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and the cup and drink the cup. Excuse me. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So Paul says we must examine ourselves. And the examination must be an examination of unity. We partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner when we are not at peace with one another, holding on to grudges, harboring hatred, and hoarding our love. Therefore, Paul says, you need to judge the body rightly. That is, you need to understand what's happening when you take the Lord's Supper. It's not merely just something we do, but the Lord is near to us. And we need to approach it with a proper reverence and weightiness about what is taking place when we do this. And so, listen, whereas the Apostle Paul is approaching this in a negative light due to all the trouble that the Corinthians were causing, I'd like to just for a moment approach it in a positive light. Because really this horizontal member-to-member -member, um, aspect of the Lord's Supper is not about us as much as it is about honoring Christ. Because when we partake of the Lord's Supper in peace and harmony, we are accomplishing the very thing that Jesus died to create. One unified body. Think of Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus died to take the two men and make them one. To break down the dividing barrier between Jew and Gentile and to bring them into one family. Jesus died to create one new humanity. And when we sit at the table and we partake of the supper in peace and harmony, not as a diverse and warring group of people, but as one, 
with hearts of love, with hearts of patience and peace and forgiveness, when we do that, we glorify our King. We actually enact and accomplish the very thing that He died for. And so, before we move on to our next section, I hope you can see how once our understanding of the Lord's Supper has changed from a more narrow view to a more complete view, it sets us down this path. And I'd like you to consider for just a moment, I'd like to make an appeal to you. Consider what the Scripture says that the Lord's Supper does. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26 says that it proclaims the gospel. We proclaim the gospel when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 2 verse, excuse me, chapter 22 verse 19 says that when we partake the Lord's Supper, it fosters remembrance in the Lord's sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 22 verse 20 When we partake the Lord's Supper, it sets forth our new covenant relationship with God. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, it directs us to our hope, the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, what we just read, it promotes unity within the body of Christ. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, it unites us to the head of the body, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so now let me ask, if the Lord's Supper truly secures those blessings, and I have on good authority the Word of God that it does, why wouldn't we want to celebrate it as often as we gather together? Why wouldn't we want to have those blessings for ourselves? We don't want less blessing. We want more blessing. We don't want less of one another. We don't want less unity. We want more unity. And we, lastly, don't want less of Christ. We want more of Him. And that comes through partaking the Lord's Supper. Now, moving on, I understand that maybe you're convinced. Okay, I I see that. That makes sense. And you understand the spiritual significance in the Lord's Supper, but you're still not quite convinced that we should celebrate it every Sunday. Right, Because maybe that's a, a bigger jump and it's a little bit harder to make. Let me go ahead and read for you um, a section from what we just read. I'm, it's just a smattering of verses to get the sense of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, this is first verses 17 through 20. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and the one who is hungry and another is drunk. Then jumping down to verse 33, So brethren, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So, in those verses, the Apostle Paul mentions the Corinthians coming together five separate times. They're coming together as a church. You're gathering together as a church. And we understand that reference, coming together, to be 
um, in, in reference to their regular services when they came, when they gathered together as the people of God. And what the Apostle Paul is telling them is that when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. So your services aren't profitable, but they're actually worse off because you guys are together. And he says, why? Why is it so bad? Well, because divisions exist among you. You're coming together and all these, as we talked about, all these different divisions are manifesting themselves. So, and particularly these divisions manifested themselves at the Lord's Supper. When they were to partake of the Lord's Supper, the rich were eating the good stuff on their own. The poor were hungry. Some people were getting drunk. And so Paul says, it's just better that you don't even get together. And so if we just take a step back for a moment and reconstruct that situation, it becomes clear that whenever the Christians or the Corinthians came together, it involved a celebration of the Lord's Supper. I think verse 20 is abundantly clear. The Apostle Paul says, when you meet together, which presumably would have been every Lord's Day, when you meet together, he says, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And that's not a reference to you're not eating the Lord's Supper, but that you're eating it and you're abusing it. When you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, implying that they were eating the Lord's Supper whenever they came together. And so that they violated and profaned the Supper when they partook of it, it does appear that they took it weekly, that they celebrated the Supper weekly. And so, in addition to this, I'd like to make an argument from church history. In the sources that I've selected, I've gone as far back as possible, literally within a hundred years of the birth of the church, to show you that this weekly observance that we're going to do here isn't something new. It isn't like we're going to Roman Catholicism. We're trying to be biblical. We're trying to base everything we're doing off the scripture. So check this out. This comes from um, Justin Martyr. He, as you can tell by his name, Martyr, was one of the first people to die as a martyr for their faith in Christ. He lived from the year 100 to the year 165. And in his writing, The First Apology, he describes a typical Sunday service. I'm going to read it for you. It's a little long, so just bear with me. He says, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And in, excuse me, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So he says, on Sunday, everyone who lives in the cities and everyone who lives in the countryside gather together. And the first thing they do is read the memoirs of the apostles. Now, what's fascinating at that time, the Bible, the New Testament at least, wasn't a thing. There were just these random writings of the apostles that were being handed out to different churches. And it, at that time, especially when Justin is writing, there wasn't um, uh, the scripture. So they read the apostles' memoirs, or they read from the prophets as long as time permitted. Then, he says, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to imitation of these good things. So the scripture is read, and then the president, presumably the pastor or the elder, or whoever it may be, um, verbally instructs. And he says, okay, now you've, you've heard it, go do it. Go live a godly life. And then he continues... Then we all rise together and pray, 
And as before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation over that which thanks has been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. He says, after the message, then, the bread and the water and the wine, the ancient church, it seems, mixed the wine with water. I don't know if that was either to dilute the strongness of the wine, the potency of the wine, or if it was, for theological reasons, I'm thinking of the water that poured out of Jesus' side in the Gospel of John. So maybe something like that was going on, but it's a clear reference to the Lord's Supper. He says, then, after that, after the elements are out, we ask for forgiveness, or excuse me, that's another one. We offer prayers of thanksgiving according the president prays, and then the people assent saying amen. Then it's distributed, and the people partake of the Lord's Supper. This happened every Sunday. And then there's another document called the Didache. Have you guys ever heard of that? The Didache, it means the teaching. Um, and most scholars believe that this document, the teaching, was written sometime before the close of the first century. So literally, there are still first century Christians alive when this document was written. One scholar called it the earliest surviving descriptive account of Christian rituals of baptism and the Eucharist. And the oldest living church order. And, and here's what the teaching says. But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. So he says they gather together and then they break bread, which is clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. They're breaking bread. And then after the uh, bread is distributed, it says they confess their transgressions so that they can partake of the Lord's Supper in a pure manner. He says, but let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is what was, which was spoken by the Lord. In every place and time offer to me a pure sacrifice, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. So they say, if you're feuding with your brother or sister, don't partake until you've been reconciled. And after you've been reconciled, then you can partake because the unity of the body that's enacted. So, given the early dating of these two documents, I believe it's safe to assume that the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper wasn't an addition to, it wasn't something that these early churches made up apart from the apostles, but it was a continuation of the apostolic practice. This was something that the church had done since the very beginning of its foundation. And you'll find that throughout church history, it was always this way until, contrary to popular belief, it was the Roman Catholic Church who started to take the Lord's Supper and pull it away from the people. So there was weekly observance, and then they started to say, only the priest can take it, but you guys can't. And then it was not only the priest can take it and you guys can't, but if you ever partake, once a year, you only get to partake of the bread. And then the Protestant Reformation happened. Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they said, this is crazy. And what did they do? They went back to weekly observance. Martin Luther did that, then John Calvin. John Calvin got stifled because his people didn't want to do that, so he wasn't able to, but he wanted to, and in his institutes, he talks a lot about it. So, and then the Roman Catholic Church, after everyone was becoming Protestant, 
They said, okay, we're going to do it every week now. And then somewhere along the line, Protestant churches forgot about this practice, and we started celebrating it once a month or once every quarter, where all along it was always the culmination of our service. And you think about how that relates to the temple. When someone wouldn't go to offer a sacrifice at the temple in the Old Covenant, they would always offer this meal, and then they would eat part of it, and then part of it would be burned to God. It would be roasted on the altar, and so that there was nothing left. And it was, what was being symbolized there was that there was a fellowship between you and that, or between you and God, you and Yahweh. He was partaking of the meal as it was burned and the smoke ascended to him, and he would smell in the aroma, the passage says, and then the worshiper would eat in the temple before God. And so it was like this fellowship meal with God and the worshiper. And you see how that just transfers on ever so nicely into the Lord's Supper, that at the end of our worship service, we have this meal with the Lord, that the Lord offers himself to us. So I'm rambling at this point. I hope that after all this, you've been sufficiently persuaded that this is a proper and true understanding of the Lord's Supper, and we're not just trying to pull the covers over your eyes or or, or whatever. We're moved here by the authority of Scripture and really nothing else. And so we, it's been the prayer that you'll be ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper with great joy and eagerness. Because it really is a beautiful thing. God is not far off, but He's in our very midst. And He invites us to a feast at His table. And not just a feast of bread, but He gives Himself to us, His own life. We share in Him and with him. So, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's reconcile ourselves to one another and offer up a prayer of thanksgiving and accept the Lord's invitation to his table.